So I think the message here for our international colleagues listening, if you have the energy to put together a clinical trials protocol, I bet colleagues you know, around your country will be happy to adopt it. Uh, they'll be delighted to, to join the clinical trial, uh, particularly if there is some funding to do it, because it's a win-win for everyone. Welcome to a new episode of the Terragnostic Talks podcast. My name is Gustav Vidar, and together with me in the studio, I have the fantastic Annette Andrian. Welcome, Annette. Thank you, Gustav. So good to be here. Yes. How are you today? Good. Very, very good. Excited about our coming. Yes. But, but before we start, we need to mention some important thing. Uh, September the 2nd, we have a webinar with a topic, Teragnostics in Prostate Cancer. So if you're interested in that, please check our LinkedIn site or some Nordic website and see the program and uh, sign up for it. Yeah, fantastic program. Yes, go in and then check it out. Talking about prostate cancer, who is today's guest? Professor Michael Hoffman from Peter Mac. Yes. He is a well-published and interesting guy, have done a lot in the area of prostate cancer and PSMA. So looking forward for this talk. Yeah. Take it away. Professor Michael Hoffman is director of the Prostate Cancer Theranostics and Imaging Center of Excellence at the Peter McCallum Cancer Center in Melbourne. He has contributed to some of the most important progresses for imaging and treatment of prostate cancer. And according to Mr. Hoffman, collaboration is the true key to success. Michael Hoffman has over 200 peer-reviewed articles and book chapters. He's received a number of international awards and is a frequent speaker at international meetings. Welcome, Professor Michael Hoffman. You are in Melbourne, Australia. First evening in August. Describe for us what is it like there today? Well, it's just on 8 p.m. in Melbourne time, and actually on the minute, we just enter our fifth lockdown, thanks to COVID-19 in Melbourne. Uh, we don't have many cases in Melbourne. I think there were eight cases in the whole of Melbourne, a city of around 5 million people a day. Uh, but we are on a, you know, almost no COVID. Uh, we are almost COVID-free. So whenever there is a single case of COVID, uh, we try to either eliminate it or suppress it. So this is the uh, fifth or sixth lockdown in Melbourne. I'm, I'm losing count, but it means that tomorrow the children will not go to school. They'll be in homeschool over Zoom. Uh, so it's a little bit frustrating for us here in Melbourne. So good to have you on the on the on the talk here, Michael. And you have just into the questions. You have said that you have the maybe one of the best jobs on the planet. Why? What do you appreciate the most? I think I appreciate that it's a, a very dynamic job. One, it changes every six to 12 months. There is new technology, both on the imaging side and on the therapeutic side. And it's, uh, you know, improving the outcomes of our patients. And that's visible to us as clinicians. We can see the improved outcomes uh, both through better accuracy of imaging and through uh, therapeutics, many other fields of medicine, uh, not much changes. For example, I, I think if you're into anesthetics, putting people to sleep, the technology has perhaps not evolved that quickly. What you are doing now compared to 10 years ago is is really very similar. So there's always something new to master in nuclear medicine, new skills to learn. That keeps our job very interesting. I think another interesting aspect of my job as a nuclear medicine physician is interactions with a large number of different people from radiopharmacists to radiochemists to medical physicists, technologists, nurses, and then all the clinical specialties that we collaborate with, surgeons, medical oncologists, radiation oncologists. And it extends beyond that to computer scientists working on artificial intelligence algorithms. This deep collaboration uh, 
keeps things really, really very interesting. And if you should summarize the last, when you say a, thing, a, a lot of things has happened, what is the three most important things that has happened during the, the years? Oh, three most important. That's a bit of a challenge. If I think back, I think I did my first year of nuclear medicine training almost 20 years ago, not quite. And in my first year of nuclear medicine, there was no hybrid imaging even. It was planar imaging, SPECT without SPECT CT, and no PET imaging. Back then, there were two or three PET scanners in the whole of Melbourne, so it was not easy to access PET technology. So my first year of nuclear medicine was very simple, planar, blurry images. Uh, and we didn't have any really new radiopharmaceuticals at that time. It was you know, bone scanning and renal imaging and cardiac imaging, but these traces had already been around for 15 and 20 years, and it didn't feel like a lot was changing. So I think if I had to think of three things that have changed, one is hybrid imaging with CT, both PET CT and SPECT CT. This has really revolutionized our diagnostics. And advances in radiochemistry, which have really brought along a whole array of new radiotraces, uh, gallium dotatate, gallium PSMA, uh, you know, lots of fluorinated traces from FET. And we have this whole library of different PET traces now, which is very exciting. And beyond imaging, maybe the third thing is a variety of new theranostic agents, uh, PSMA, uh, dotatate, but it ties very tightly with the imaging and we're really personalizing care very tightly now. Uh, and that's been a major change. I think Theranostics, when I started nuclear medicine with radioactive iodine was very, sim very simple. You have a thyroidectomy, you have real remnant ablation. There was almost a standard cocktail to it. Now with tight integration of imaging and therapy, we're really personalizing uh, patient care and individualizing uh, decision making. Uh, you have a very impressive, and I don't need to tell you that, but a very strong, among a lot of other things, uh, track record when it comes to being able to move new agents from phase zero, phase two, uh, one, two, and three, the whole range. And what would you say, how come? How have you been so successful? It's a great question. Uh... I suppose there is a whole variety of factors coming together at uh, Peter Mac in Melbourne, uh, where I work. Uh, probably number one is uh, culture, a culture of innovation. We attract uh, academically minded nuclear medicine specialists, but not just doctors, also radiochemists, pharmacists, technologists. You know, this is a department that that Rod Hicks established a long time ago, who you interviewed on, on episode one, and that certainly attracted uh, me and many others to Peter Mac. And it's a constellation of uh, a culture of uh, innovation and wanting to do the best for our uh, patients, uh, having the infrastructure to do that. Uh, so we had the fourth PET-CT scanner in the world and the radiochemistry, radiopharmacy facilities to, to make these radio traces uh, in-house, uh, a favorable regulatory environment in Australia that perhaps we can touch on later, uh, but we don't have the sort of FDA block that I think occurs in the USA. Uh, very importantly, we have uh, uh, clinicians who are similarly really interested in nuclear medicine, so our surgeons oncologists, radiation oncologists, nuclear medicine plays a big part in the hospital and they're really all on board and they come to visit us in nuclear medicine and we interact very closely uh, at our tumor board or multidisciplinary meetings. And perhaps most importantly, we have a concentration of patients being a you know tertiary cancer hospital. We have patients coming from far and wide, uh, high volume. Uh, there's a need to to innovate, to, to do the best for our patients. So we have uh, patients that are willing to try new treatments, that are willing to enrol in clinical trials, uh, who are willing to travel to have a new treatment that's not available uh, elsewhere. I think all these factors come together. There's, there's no one factor, 
but you need all these things coming together to make something special happen, which certainly happens at, at Peter Mac. Great. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, you and, and the team, uh, of course, the Peter Mac, uh, you have done a tremendous work in the area of prostate cancer with the Peru PSMA and the uh, therapy trials. Uh, can we start a little bit with, with, a, with the Peru PSMA trial? Uh, it was published in The Lancet. Um, can you shortly just describe it and, and tell us what, 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 does, what was the outcome of the trial? Yeah, so the Pro PSMA trial was a randomized trial. We took men with newly diagnosed prostate cancer who had high-risk prostate cancer on biopsy and was scheduled to have curative intense surgery or radiotherapy. And we randomized them to either a PSMA PET CT with gallium PSMA or a CT bone scan. And uh, we carefully assessed the accuracy. And we did this by following patients for six months and developing a rigid criteria system to score all the information available up to that time point, not just histopathology, because histopathology sometimes gets it wrong owing to sampling error. And therefore we could establish the ground truth. And since we were randomized, we could very cleanly compare the accuracy of a CT scan compared to a bone scan. And we were able to show an accuracy of over 90% for PSMA PET CT compared to an accuracy in the high 60s for CT bone scan. So it was a 29% absolute improvement in accuracy for a PSMA PET CT compared to CT bone scan. But not just management, we looked at uh, management impact. Did this change patient management? So we surveyed our clinicians and we were able to show a significant high impact of PSMA PET. They were, clinicians were changing the way they treated their patients, perhaps changing from surgery to ADT, hormonal therapy, or sometimes extending the radiotherapy field. And there was double the high management impact with uh, PSMA PET compared to standard imaging. And then we looked at other factors, uh, equivocal results. So when you have an imaging scan, if the scan comes back with an uncertain finding, equivocal finding, this leads to additional tests, another scan, or an unnecessary uh, biopsy, or uncertainty for the patients. And there was you know, a major decrease in these equivocal findings with PSMA PET, and reporter agreement was high. There were no adverse effects with uh, PSMA PET CT. And we conducted this study at around 10 centres around Australia. So we had the multi-centre strength, not just proving that it can work at somewhere like Peter Mac, a tertiary academic centre, but that this technology can be applied more broadly. And, uh, you know, it was a really close collaboration of nuclear medicine with our urology and radiation oncology colleagues who were recruiting these patients. It was published in The Lancet, I think, in March last year. And, uh, you know, it was quite a challenge to put together, but uh, uh, it was good fun. And I think it's having a meaningful impact because, uh, the results are definitive and uh, they are the sorts of results that government and health technology assessment committees and insurance companies can look at and say unequivocally, this is good for our patients and uh, it's hard for them to reject funding PSMA PET-CT after we generate this high level of evidence showing that uh, it's beneficial. But if we wind back, perhaps... A few years earlier, we actually did the first PSMA PET CT at Peter Mac back in back in 2014, uh, so almost seven years ago. And you know, it was really evident from patient number one. This was not as part of the pro PSMA trial, but as part of routine clinical practice. It was evident from patient one that this was a game changing technology. Uh, I I kind of clearly remember patient number one because he was a 79 year old man. He was scheduled to have his prostate taken out, which is a big procedure for a 79-year-old. He had a localized high-risk prostate cancer. And on the PSMA PET, he had a pelvic node that measured three millimeters that was really lighting up very brightly on PSMA PET and also a bony metastasis. Uh, so the urologists changed this patient management. He actually enrolled in a clinical trial and accessed enzalutamide at the time. And he came back for a PSMA PET one year later. And I caught up with him in the waiting room because I remember that he was patient number one. And he was so thankful that he accessed this technology that that redirected him away from surgery, which was never going to 
to cure him. And the pictures were very clear. But with a clear picture alone, we can change the outcomes of that individual patient, but we can't change global practice. If we show these pictures to government or insurance companies or health technology assessment committees, they go, thank you very much. That's a pretty picture, but we don't really know how this impacts the population. Uh, it's insufficient evidence base. And that's imaging research in the last sort of 40, 50 years has been centered around producing pretty pictures. And, you know, I've known for some time that we need to do to do better. So that was really the birth of the pro-PSMA trial, knowing that we have this incredible new technology. But unless we as nuclear medicine specialists can show in randomized controlled trials that it improves outcomes, it's unlikely to be adopted globally. Cool. Uh, what is your opinion? If you have a pet pet camera at the hospital, uh, can you now stop using bone skin graphic for these patients? We need to remember, of course, there there are hospitals around the world that, that not have the pet technology and, and, and maybe the, the SPECT CT or, or SPECT is, is, is quite a good option. But, but uh, if you have a, a pet camera, should you just start using PSMA PET Correct. for this patient. You should just mm. start using PSMA PET. And, and this was another nice feature of the pro-PSMA trial because many imaging trials, even randomized trials, what they do is they look at the new imaging modality after the existing modality. So it could be MRI, CT, bone scanning, whatever it is. You have a new scan, you have the standard scan, and then you do the new scan and you see, is there an advantage? And in pro-PSMA, we randomized patients to first-line PSMA or first-line CT bone scan, and we showed that a PSMA PET scan was superior in just about every aspect. I should also mention the radiation dose for a PSMA PET CT was half of a CT and bone scan. Uh, so we were able to show that you could replace CT and bone scan with a single scan, and certainly that is now the practice at Peter Mac. You no longer get a bone scan if you've got a high-risk prostate cancer for staging. Another component of the pro-PSMA trial, which was not published in the Lancet publication, but published in a second publication in European Urology, is we embedded into the trial a health economics assessment. So we had a health economist uh, by the name of Richard de Abra-Lurinko, who specializes in this area. And we actually costed up the entire chain of a gallium-68 PSMA PET scan from the generator to the radio pharmacist or chemist time, to the PET CT acquisition time, even beyond that, to the patient time. How long did the patient have to wait for the uptake time for a PSMA PET CT? How did that compare to a CT bone scan? And we showed that, in fact, a single PSMA PET CT cost around $1,200 Australian dollars compared to $1,400 for a CT and bone scan. So the PSMA PET-CT is not only superior, but in the Australian context, a little bit cheaper uh, than a CT bone scan. And it's not surprising because it's one scan rather than two scans. Uh, so on its own, a PSMA PET is more expensive than either a CT or a bone scan, but the standard of care for prostate cancer has been doing two scans. And now we can do this uh, with one scan and it's actually cost-effective and Australia is a very expensive country. So I'd like to think that if PSMA PET CT is a little bit cheaper than CT bone scan in an expensive country like Australia, perhaps this ought to be true for many other countries in the world, but there's obviously major differences in, in healthcare. So our results you know, may not be true for, for all other countries, but certainly will be true for some. So important work that you have done. We will talk uh, more about this multi-center approach you have in, in, in Australia. Uh, but first, we f I think we need to talk a little bit about the, the therapy trial as well. Uh, that was the first phase two trial using lutetium PSMA for the treatment of, of, of prostate cancer. Uh, can you shortly give us what was the therapy trial and the outcome of that trial? Yeah, so the therapy trial was a phase two uh, randomized trial. We compared... Uh, up to six cycles of lutetium PSMA 617 to carbazitaxel chemotherapy in a group of men with metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer who had progressed after uh, docetaxel and mostly after enzalutamide or abiraterone. 
and we screened men quite carefully. They all had a PSMA PET and also an FDG PET, and these were centrally reviewed. And uh, using a quantitative PET criteria, which is a little bit unique, you have to have had an SUV max over 20 at one site of prostate cancer, and uh, the FDG was used to exclude patients that had FDG positive, uh, PSMA negative uh, sites of disease. We then uh, randomized them one-to-one to to either of these uh, treatments. Uh, You know, this was an investigator-initiated study, much like pro-PSMA, so it was not run by industry, even though it did have uh, industry support. And the primary outcome was a PSA reduction over 50%, which is a well-recognized criteria for sort of a good response. And this occurred in 66% of men randomized to lutetium PSMA 617, compared to only 37% of men randomized to carbazitaxel. Uh, So actually a 29% absolute improvement in the primary endpoint. The same number as Mm, pro-PSMA, interestingly. And... uh, and obviously a different endpoint. But we also showed that progression-free survival was prolonged with uh, lutetium PSMA by 12 months. Almost everyone in the carbazitaxel arm had progressed, whereas in the lutetium arm, around 20% of men had not progressed. And despite this greater efficacy of the lutetium, the side effects were less, which is quite remarkable because often in oncology, it's the opposite. Uh, You know, greater efficacy, more toxicity. Here we have greater efficacy, less toxicity. So grade three to four, which are severe adverse events, uh, not necessarily attributed to drug because it was a randomized trial. So in either arm, if you had a G3, four adverse event, which may have been due to disease progression, but very clean because of this randomized design, that occurred in 33% of men randomized or who received lutetium compared to 53% of men who received carbazitaxel. And we also incorporate a lot of patient reported outcomes. So these men in the trial filled out quality of life questionnaires every three weeks, and we showed improvements in a variety of uh, quality of life parameters, such as fatigue, uh, skin rash, uh, uh, a whole range, diarrhea, the typical chemotherapy side effects that you get with carbazitaxel that just don't occur with lutetium. So the quality of life was better uh, in men. Uh, who received uh, lutetium. And uh, this again was uh, conducted at a very similar network of sites to the pro-PSMA study. So it was really that pro-PSMA study, a lot of work was done establishing that network of sites around Australia. And once we had established that, it was much easier second time around uh, to launch the therapy trial. We did add a few sites, changed a few sites around, but it was largely the same network of sites. So we already had this great group of nuclear medicine physicians, but also radiopharmacists, radiochemists, technologists, uh, all already working together. Mm. Building on the collaboration all the time, moving forward also. Yeah. yeah. Can, can we expect some overall survival data from, from that trial as well? Uh, we will. So, so mm. we haven't analyzed that yet. We had a pre-specified statistical analysis plan, and it said that we need 176 uh, survival events until we press the button and run that analysis. Uh, So we don't know, even as the sort of chair of the study or the principal investigator of the trial, I don't know the answer to that because it's locked away in the database. It still uh, continues to be collected. Uh, We said we're going to continue collecting data until end of this year, or if 176 deaths occur, that will trigger the survival analysis. So we will have that uh, data for you by the end of the year. So I'm hopeful that given that improvement in progression-free survival at 12 months, that that will translate to an improvement in overall survival. Of course, we already know the answer to this from the vision trial, the phase three and endocyte Novartis trial, that there is an improvement in overall survival, obviously a different trial design. Uh, so I hope we will show it with compared to carbazitaxel as well. But in any event, I think showing improved quality of life and decreased side effects and in you know significantly improved efficacy, sort of efficacy measures that on the whole are double carbazitaxel. If we look at PSA response or even resist CT response, we've got a major improvement with, with lutetium. So I think there's 
enough data in therapy, even though it's a phase two trial, I think it's a practice changing phase two trial, particularly in the setting of the vision trial. So if you have a man with castration resistant disease today who doesn't quite fit maybe the vision trial criteria, which does show improved overall survival, but you're debating, you know, should I give carbazitax or, or lutetium PSMA to, I, I think the answer is in favor of lutetium PSMA if we want to do the best, best for our patients. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, and uh, I think if you are interested more in the vision trial, you had an excellent uh, webinar together with uh, Declan Murphy uh, earlier this summer. So I think it's on. You, you can find it online or? Yes. So Declan Murphy hosts uh, GUCAST. Declan is the head of our uro-oncology service. He's a urologist, but uh, really into theranostics. He tells me he's going to do a sabbatical in nuclear medicine. He loves nuclear medicine so much. Uh, <laughs> and uh, every every now and again, we have a special podcast, which is quite nuclear medicine focused uh, in urology. So anytime there is new data, uh, you know, have a look at GUcast and you'll certainly learn a lot about uh, interface of urology and uh, nuclear medicine. Yeah, and you have this webinar, the prostatic webinar as well. Correct. We also do a webinar mm-hmm. roughly every mm-hmm. three months together with the with the Prostate Cancer Foundation. Uh, so PCF in the US uh, have supported us by funding a, a center of excellence in our hospital through through a large grant. Actually, thanks to thanks to one of your colleagues, perhaps in Norway, uh, Stein Erik Hagen, uh, who has you know donated a, a large amount of money to the. U.S. Prostate Cancer Foundation, and that's flowed through to through us at Peter Max. So we're really very grateful, and that allows us to run a few more clinical trials, but also invest some time in this in this education uh, because it's an important thing to do with lutetium PSMA coming coming online. It's something that many people are not familiar with, and the implementation how to how to start a practice in in lutetium PSMA is a big challenge if you've never done it before. Uh, so we hope to, you know, provide a bit of uh, education and practical advice of how to do this to to others. You you have mentioned now a lot of times uh, collaboration being one of the key uh, things. And uh, tell more about the success in Australia, uh, what we have achieved. Yeah. Uh... I think collaboration is key because as individuals, there is really only so much we can do. And even collaborations within a single center, uh, there is only so much we can do. And, you know, I I started life doing a lot of neuroendocrine tumor theranostics with gallium dotatate, lutetium dotatate, and and, uh, these collaborations didn't really exist. And we were you know, publishing a lot of single center data, retrospective data. And to do a very large trial, 200 patients, 300 patients or more, this can't be done in a single center, even in a large center like Peter Mac. It really needs a larger group of people uh, working together. And at some point, together with some cooperative clinical trials groups. And the two main ones in Australia is one focused on prostate cancer research, which was the ANZUP Cancer Trials Group, which is really a oncology-based trials group, together with uh, ARTNET, which is the Australian Radiopharmaceuticals Trials Network. These are sort of two cooperative trend clinical trials groups, and we got them both working together on pro-PSMA and uh, therapy study. And, and, and there were a lot of challenges. Uh, the challenges in the beginning were many centers when we started pro-PSMA had never performed a gallium do- a PSMA PET scan before at the time. And being a prospective clinical trial, you know, this was done using a hospital-based radiopharmacy approach at the time. Now there's commercial providers that you can buy your, you know, GMP-produced uh, uh, fluorinated PSMA f- from, but at the time it was gallium PSMA. And and we needed to standardize this. So ArtNet being a cooperative trials group, we were able to come up with some real standards, you know, for quality control for both production. This is how it's going to be produced. We didn't, we weren't too prescriptive because different centers have different equipment. But what we were prescriptive in was the quality control. Every center 
must have done HPLC and uh, we set some minimum specifications. And uh, we also did some PET scanner validation uh, to make sure that the quantitation was accurate on the PET scanners. We did phantoms. So a lot of validation early on and, and uh, it was quite a lot of work. And actually at the time I thought perhaps we were a bit obsessive. Uh, do we really need all this quality control? It's really laborsome filling up a phantom with, with gallium 68 and scanning it and sending it off for central review. And, and actually to my amazement, we found even in the Australian context, three quarters of the centres had inaccurate SUV calculations for gallium 68. And it was because the, uh, the well counter that uh, tells you how much gallium you've drawn up, uh, which you know one of the commercial manufacturers, the default settings prescribed in the manual worked very well for fluorine, for FDG, which is the main tracer used, but were actually incorrect for gallium 68. So three quarters of the centres were uh, overestimating SUV by 18%, which was outside of our limits. And we recalibrated and uh, it was a surprise finding. It was really a shock to me that uh, most of the centres in Australia could be inaccurate to that degree. Uh, I think this is a problem that's now been resolved, but it does highlight the need for some quality control parameters when we're doing multi-centre trials. Uh, but the other thing is, I think I found... You know, most centres are very happy to come on board and particularly if there is some funding. And this trial, thanks to ProPSMA, was funded by Movember and the Prostate Cancer Foundation of Australia, so really funded through philanthropy. But what that meant is that patients didn't have to pay for their PSMA PET scans. It was new technology, but it was funded by a, a grant and all the data collection was also funded by the grant. But with a little bit of funding and not a huge amount of funding, many sites around Australia were very happy to come on board. So I think the message here for our international colleagues listening, if you have the energy to put together a clinical trials protocol, I bet colleagues you know, around your country will be happy to adopt it. Uh, they'll be delighted to, to join the clinical trial, uh, particularly if there is some funding to do it, because it's a win-win for everyone. People get access to the new technology in a very safe way. And we also produce the clinical data that governments require in order to fund the technology to make it uh, sustainable. Uh, it also is a great collaboration. It, it's fun. It creates a network of people working together on a on a common mission or a common goal. And uh, you know, everyone has a little bit of fun. We got together regularly over the pro PSMA trial at you know congresses, and we would have a a pro PSMA dinner. Uh, which was very nice, and and the network just continues to grow. Uh, so I think collaboration is the key to really changing practice and and uh, doing these sorts of clinical trials. And I think the days of having a new tracer and just uh, scanning patients and then looking back to see is it more accurate, is it less accurate, how did it change management, but doing it retrospectively are are over. And if we if we have a new novel tracer, we ought to work with our clinical colleagues to say, how are we going to use this tracer to improve patient outcomes? What's the what's the critical question? Define the question, come up with a hypothesis, uh, put together a clinical trial because, you know, pro-PSMA is only 300 men, which is not a lot, 300 patients. And I think the trial is now being used by all around the world to change practice. And we could scan 3,000 men or 30,000 men with PSMA PET, but if we just do it ad hoc, not properly on a clinical trial, 300 men, high quality data is much more powerful than 30,000 men, all heterogeneous, not done properly and not really knowing what it all means. Cool. We had we had Louise Emmerter in the podcast, I think in May, and, and she said that with, with research, you can change the the outcome for a million of people, uh, not only for the, for the one at your hospital. So so it's a, a nice approach. Yeah, I completely agree. And Louise Emmett is a great collaborator. You know, she's in Sydney, we're in Melbourne, and uh, every project we come up with, we we share pretty much. There, there, is, there is no competition. The value is if Louise has a great idea, well, let's both open the trial because we can recruit patients twice as fast and uh, we have a much better outcome. Uh, so we so we love collaborating with each other.
talking about, about collaboration, uh, what do you see, where do you see industry in this collaboration? Yeah, industry are key to this collaboration because you know, if we want to make these technologies widely available, uh, we need industry to do this. Uh, you know, single hospitals or single investigators uh, don't have this capacity. So, for example, in the in the therapies trial, we did have industry collaborators. Although this was an investigator-initiated trial, uh, we had an agreement with Ansto in Australia to provide our lutetium one seven seven for the trial, and we also had an agreement with. Uh, actually, it started with ABX uh, supplying PSMA six one seven. Then it changed hands to Indesite, and then to to Novartis all over the course of that uh, clinical trial. But they provided some uh, supply of peptide, but also some financial support uh, for the study, which was which was critical. Uh, so we do need industry support because our hospitals are funded by clinical service. They are, you know, we we do need additional funds to do clinical trial and increasingly it's industry that's helping with those trials and there's obviously two models there there's a investigator initiated trial and uh and an industry sponsored trial where you know in the former someone like me writes the clinical trial protocol we may have support from industry in terms of funding or access to to drug or product uh, and in the latter the company writes the protocol and hands it to the investigator and says please run run the trial. I think they're, they're both really important. If we look at the therapy trial compared to the vision trial, I think we, we see the merits of both, the therapy trial being a smaller phase two investigator initiated trial, the vision trial being a industry-sponsored phase three trial, and they both answer slightly different questions. They both really provide really complementary uh, information and uh, both really improving outcomes for our patients. Uh, but I think industry is placing a bigger and bigger role, uh, particularly in pet imaging, radiopharmaceutical production, and and also uh, theranostics, and also providing the, the funding for the for the next, you know, what's going to be the next radiopharmaceutical. Uh, there's, you know, array of technologies to develop the next protein to target a particular uh, receptor all the way through to, you know, the uh, preclinical experiments that are needed through to the phase uh, one trial. I think this is often done with deep collaborations between uh, academic people, you know, like myself and, and industry partners. And for the future, you're talking about the future now, what would you say would be what should industry start doing even more how can is there any chance for industry to collaborate or contribute better than today or previously yeah that's a great question look i think industry is increasingly coming more and more on board but if you look at many of the fundamental discoveries they often still come out of academia so even psma 617 i think is the result of Someone's PhD at the University of Heidelberg in Germany came up with, with PSMA 617. Uh, so I think industry are often actually surprisingly not doing this discovery research, so to speak. They are often, what industry is good at is picking up a technology and making it available to the global population. This is perhaps what we as academic doctors are not very good at. Uh, we are good at doing it within our own hospital, but not good at commercializing it so that it's available to, to millions of people. Uh, so industry is picking up the game-changing technologies and making it globally available. Uh, and I think us as academic people, often we need our, a little bit of freedom to, to play in the lab and, and develop the new technology. But this does need funding. Uh, so there has been a, a real underinvestment in fundamental nuclear medicine research over a long period of time. Uh, so I think some more investment in the early phase fundamental research that could be, you know, uh, providing grants to uh, academic institutions or, or more partnerships uh, is a way that industry can help. Uh, 
I think we're mainly using lutetium-177 today in the world of neuroendocrine and prostate theranostics, but in the future we're going to be using a whole other array of radioisotopes. We need industry to to produce this. You know, this is not something that individuals or hospitals produce. This is a huge exercise. Uh, so industry has a big role in upscaling production of a variety of different uh, radio traces, which will form the next generation theranostics. Interesting. And what do you see in the next generation then? What is, if you should just look at the horizon or, or what you call it, what do you see then? I see a really bright future because if we look across all the different tumor types, you know, what we have done with neuroendocrine tumors and prostate cancers really can be done with with a variety of of different malignancies uh, on the theranostic side, uh, particularly endocrine malignancies and uh, and also hematologic malignancies. I, I think we have huge potential in a variety of different tumor types. Uh, but by the same token, it's not so easy to find the next dotatate or the next PSMA. Uh, often uh, these efforts fail and uh, I'm not sure what the next game-changing theranostic will be, to be honest. I think, you know, PSMA came from nowhere. You know, overnight, suddenly there's a there's a new target. I think we, we do have a unique ability to image what we treat and uh, we should not lose sight of that. And uh, sometimes if you invest a few million dollars, uh, particularly from an industry point of view, in a new target and you can see on the images that it's not going to work, but you don't want to admit it. You've invested several million dollars. You're waiting for the next Novartis to buy you out. So you really want to sell this compound as a game changer, even though it's clear that it is not. So we also need to recognize failure early on and uh, you know, focus on the traces that are really likely to improve patient outcomes. Unfortunately, we can do that with our imaging. And you see this with dotatate and PSMA, extraordinary tumor to background contrast. So I see some novel traces that really have very low tumor to con background contrast, but the company is still working away to find an indication for it. Oh, it's not going to work on its own. Can I combine it with something else to make it work? Well, it's not ever likely to work. Uh, so we need to be very agile in uh, focusing on winning compounds, uh, throwing out the ones that, that don't work and, you know, not investing too much in that very first uh, trial because it's likely to fail. And if we put all our eggs in one basket, then we might go broke by the time we work out that this doesn't work. There's no money left to try the next compound. So we need better systems to sort of signal seek and find the compounds with these high tumor to background contrast uh, so that we can really improve outcomes. And, you know, it's really hard to know where the next game-changing technology is going to be. And it may, we're all focused on oncology in theranostics, but we should remember that theranostics actually began with benign thyroid disease, treating patients with hyperthyroidism and still in, in widespread use around the world. Uh, so why can we not apply theranostics to, you know, rheumatoid arthritis and inflammatory condition or other in other disorders. Uh, I think we also need to think a little bit beyond just oncology. Uh, there may be use for radiation for for treating a variety of other diseases. Alzheimer. Oh, Alzheimer's. I'm not sure that theranostics is good for treating Alzheimer's, but it may be good for diagnosis in terms yes, of PET scanning exactly. with yeah. with yeah. tau and amyloid. This is very good mm -hmm. for diagnosis. But I'm actually mm. talking about theranostics in terms of treatment and. And, uh, you know, it strikes me that there are a variety of non-malignant conditions where radiation can be potentially really useful. So we shouldn't lose mind of that. Uh, but no doubt on the imaging side, there's a huge role for, for brain imaging. And who knows in the future, there may be more, you know, if there are successful drugs for treating Alzheimer's disease and we need PET imaging to diagnose dementia early on, then 
we might be doing more Alzheimer's PET scans than oncology PET scans in the future. Mm. Interesting. Uh, another way of working together is talking more together and social media is another way of working and discussing things together. Uh, and I think, Michael, you are a social media junkie. Uh, I followed you on, on Twitter and you constantly share information and insight with with other people. I followed you during ASCO and I think you were one of the first sharing the, the, the results of the vision, vision trial. Uh, why using social media within the scientific community? Yeah, thanks, Gustav. It's a, yeah, must say, I learned this from Declan Murphy because uh, with PSMA, I started going to the Euro Oncology Tumor Board meeting at, in our hospital and uh, and uh, Declan was a social media superstar. Uh, and uh, But all of urology was like this. In fact, you know, all the urologists were using social media. So I, I think I started with Twitter maybe in 2003. And uh, there were lots of urologists on Twitter, but very few nuclear medicine doctors, very few radiologists. Uh, there still are very few uh, nuclear medicine or radiology doctors on Twitter. Uh, but it is clear to me that the next generation, the young people are no longer reading textbooks and no longer reading printed journals, you know, even the societies, the European Association of Nuclear Medicine, they don't send me the paper journal in the post every month. Everything is moving electronic and COVID-19 has only accelerated this. Uh, but it means people are digesting information in different ways. Fewer people are reading the Journal of Nuclear Medicine from page one to the end of the book because in an electronic form you click on things that are of interest to you rather than going from page one to page 200. Uh, and uh, this is how young people are learning medicine. What's new information? Well, something is presented at a conference. Someone tweets about it. It's retweeted. If it's retweeted a hundred times because it's really new information that's of use, suddenly it becomes widely available very quickly. So it's a fantastic way to share information and do it so quickly. And uh, it's fun because you end up in a little club with your colleagues. Uh, uh, it's not so great for having in-depth discussions or debates, I'll confess. I think it's good for, I find it very good for sharing information, sharing information quickly. But if you really want to deep dive and, and have a debate then I think we need other forums. Uh, this is a good example of it, the podcast where we can deep dive a bit better or, or a webinar. Uh, we could even have a debate about something. Uh, this is a better forum for that. So we have, I think, a mixture of, in my world, Twitter uh, for new information sharing, a little bit of a little bit of a debate, but not so much. Uh, podcasts for a bit more deep diving webinars. You know, this is the way young people share information in the future. Uh, you can listen to a podcast on your way to work. Uh, it's, it's, it's a great way to share information and ideas. So I would encourage people listening to the podcast who aren't on Twitter to, to consider joining. Uh, it can waste a bit more time. Uh, and there are downsides too. Uh, but I think it is the way of the future. So who do you think should be our next guest on the podcast? Oh, I hadn't thought about that one. <laughs> You've had a really good selection till now. I think I've listened to about half of them. I'm still catching up to date. Uh, I was just listening to your last uh, uh, podcast on the way home uh, uh, with a great colleague from Italy uh, and uh, always a bit of humor with Stefano Fanti. Uh, yeah, so that was really uh, great to listen to. Uh, oh, maybe you'd better have uh, a radio pharmacist or a radio chemist on something a little bit different. Rather, I don't know if you've had a radio chemist on to date. Maybe you can pick Klaus Kopka from University or ex University of Heidelberg, now in Dresden. Hmm? Wow, that's good. Thank Thinking you. Thinking out of that box. 
that we had. It's another thing. It, way that's good. Very good. Yeah, we will check that out. Yes. Uh, and then we have the Nobel Prize question: Who do you think should receive the Nobel Prize for their efforts in diagnostics? Oh, that's a challenging one. Yeah. So many people in the history of uh, of nuclear medicine. Uh, look, maybe we can nominate Saul Hertz, who. Uh, discovered or first used radioactive iodine. Uh, I think we had the 80th anniversary, although he is no longer alive, so maybe he cannot win the Nobel Prize. Uh, uh, but his uh, daughter, Barbara Hertz, travels around the world uh, telling us a little bit about uh, the origins of Theranostics. You might want to interview Barbara one day too. She'll give you a, a very interesting perspective on on Theranostics, but Saul Hertz you know, was an endocrinologist, was an, he was an endocrinologist and uh, he knew that uh, the only organ in the body uh, that used iodine was the thyroid gland. And with this knowledge and working, I think, at MGM where there was the first cyclotron with the ability to produce radioactive substances asked, can you make an artificial radioactive version of, of iodine? And that question really spawned the whole radioiodine field, both for therapy uh, and for imaging. So a very simple question uh, revolutionized medicine. And uh, I think his achievements are a little bit under-recognized uh, because it's flowed through to you know, everything we do in, in nuclear medicine. Thank you, Michael, for your time. Thank you for the talk. No, my pleasure. Thank you, Gustav, and uh, thank you to both of you. It's been fantastic to be on the podcast. That was Michael Hoffman. Uh, what do you think of today's episode, Annette? So inspiring. And uh, as we talk about, uh, you set a goal and then you collaborate. Yeah, collaboration. I think that's the key word of today's podcast. Yes. Yeah. Uh, they have done a fantastic job in Australia, and maybe the Pro PSMA trial was the, was the first, uh, what do you say, door opener for that yes. type of of of, of uh, studies and trials. And I think they're doing an important job. Just wait for to see what what's the next uh, data that will be published from 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 that group from from Australia. Yes, mm. so good. Yes, should we close for today's podcast? Good idea. Yeah, uh, just remember to uh, sign up for the webinar September 2nd, Diagnostics in Prostate Cancer. Uh, if you want to reach out to us, send us an email, podcast at somnordic.se, podcast at somnordic.se, or visit our LinkedIn site or web page. page. Annette, thank you for yeah. today. Thank you. Stay tuned, stay safe. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.